Father, we thank you for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word again, as we have been doing for so many weeks and years. And God, this is a book that delves into our sorrows and the hard things of life, Father, and yet we know that the gospel is the comforting answer to these problems. So God, as we enter into what Solomon has to say to us this morning as the Holy Spirit speaks to us, God, may we consider the experiences of light in light of the gospel and may it lead us to trust you, Father. Help us to put our hope in you this morning, Father. And we pray all that in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, welcome. Glad you guys are here. And we're uh, continuing, as you know, in our, our series in Ecclesiastes. You can open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It's just past Psalms and the Proverbs, so just kind of right in the middle there. And um, as we've been saying, you know, I've heard from a lot of you, you've enjoyed Ecclesiastes. And I think it, it's because it does, it touches our soul, the things that we experience. It opens these things up and considers them. And uh, so we're going to do that again today. And Solomon's been working on this project of trying out everything under the sun. What, what is there that's out there in this life, in this world that has meaning? And really, he's found that without God, there's nothing out there that has good meaning. It's all meaningless, he'll say. In fact, the end of last week's chapter 612, he laments, Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? And the answer to that question is no one. <laughs> no one knows. A life without God, no one knows what is good to do. And we live, as we know, in a crazy day where everybody's trying to figure out what has meaning and there's all these different ways we can live and they're all contradictory and no one knows the right way to go. <laughs> kind of reminds me, if you remember back in the history of Israel in Judges 21, 25, the last verse, it says, in those days... And it, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own mind. And so we are in need to learn what wise living looks like. This is what Solomon has been after. And he's going to show us this morning that if we want to live wisely, then we need to set Jesus over our hearts. Find true wisdom in him and begin to live with him. Now, Solomon has discovered some wisdom under the sun. You try out some things, and you know that... Some things are better than others, and he's going to tell us a lot about that this week. In fact, he's going to contrast living wisely to living as a fool. That there is, It's still better to live wisely under the sun than to live as a fool. But ultimately, he wants us to live a life with God as Jesus, as Lord of our hearts. And so we'll look at that this morning. So let's look at here our first thing, starting in verse 1 there. We're going to going to look at a big section here. He's kind of got a poem of Proverbs at the beginning of this chapter, 1 through 13, about how wise Christians will keep the end of view in life, okay? And let's start by looking at verses 1 through 3. He's going to tell us death is significant. Here's what he says. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning, that means go to a funeral, than go to the house of feasting. For this, death, is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And then look at what he says here. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. 
So these, these verses kind of upend our thinking about the world. You know, we like to avoid sorrow and death and sadness. And Solomon's saying, you ought to embrace it, Christians. You ought to think about these things. There's something to learn from these things. They teach us something. Death teaches us something as we consider it. Understanding the surety of our suffering in this life and death actually puts life in perspective and it teaches you what you ought to value right now. <laughs> teaches you how to live wisely. Right? Being born is a great thing. We all celebrate the life that God has brought into the world. But we must learn from a young age that this life is coming to an end. <laughs> and let that begin to guide us. This is why he can say in verse 2 that going to the house of mourning or a funeral, it's better than a feast. Because a funeral teaches us about the scope of our lives. It says you ought to soak it in at the funeral, lay it to heart, because you're going to die next. And that leads you, to a it leads you to wisdom on what is truly valuable in this life. You know, no one at the end of their life ever says, you know, I wish I had worked more. <laughs> I wish I had more stuff. I wish I had spent more time away from my family. Right? We all want more time with people. We want more time doing things that matter. We want more time with God, right? Death brings this into perspective. Even in my own call to ministry, I remember God was calling me uh, to begin to go into ministry, and I've been working uh, in construction for 10-plus years. And, and, and as this is part of what helped me make my decision is that I, as I looked down the road of my life, I thought when I get to the end of my life, do I want to not have followed God's call and see what He has for me? Right? I wanted to see what God had for me. I could knew where the construction thing would go. I'd have a nice life, make good money, right? And that's all well and good. But I didn't want to miss what God had for me. And so I made a choice to begin living in light of where I was going. A Christian keeps the end of their life in view coming in eternity, and we let that guide our decisions. What's actually valuable in this life? I once had a friend who was dying of lung cancer, and this is kind of one of the last times we went hiking with him, and, and he had to pause every now and then as we were hiking because he couldn't breathe very well. And so as me and him were sitting there, I said, you know, what does it feel like to know you're going to die, like, really soon? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know, how does it feel? right? Like we're all going to be there, right? It's just a matter of time. We have different time frames, but we're all going to be there. This is why Moses in Psalm 90, verse 10 and 12, he says this to us. He says, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80, and yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away so, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, right? The surety of suffering and death brings everything into perspective, and Solomon says you ought to think about it because it shows you what matters. And so what are you going to pour your life into that has lasting value? Knowing that your life will come to an end and there's an eternity to spend, be spent with God or without God, what are you going to... Spend your life on now. That's what Solomon is calling us to think about. And as Kevin said here, 
You know, we're lamenting a bit this morning. We sang a song of lament. But in, Sol- in Ecclesiastes 7.3, Solomon also teaches us the value of lament. He says this. It, it's just a crazy thought. He says, sadness is better than laughter. Actually, sadness can make your heart glad. Think about that in our culture. We, as Americans, we don't like to be sad. Right? It's all fun and joking. But Solomon says there's a time already in Ecclesiastes 3-4 to weep and to mourn and that actually this is good for us. This is why we sung this song before the, the sermon. And I think this is the why. Because as we are broken over our sin, over our world, the things that we suffer, broken relationships, it shows us again what is most important in life. It shows us that we need God. Right? It shows us that we need God. It also shows us some other things. You know, we, we actually practiced this as a staff this week. We said, normally Kevin comes in and he says, hey, what's God doing in your life that's so awesome? And this week he said, what's God doing in your life? What are you lamenting over? We all kind of stared at each other like, really, Kevin, are we going to do this right now? And then we began. We began to say the things that are really weighing on our souls, the things that are burdening us. And you know what happened? You could see it around the circle as we did this. Our moods actually got better because we were sharing our burdens with one another. Right? And then we also we knew what to pray for. We also knew where to begin to walk. See, the sadness leads us to godly, leads us into wisdom, where to go, how to walk with God. And Solomon says you ought to consider it. In fact, Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 4, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you know your brokenness and cry out to God, there's a God who wants to answer you and seek you in your brokenness. Whether it be the things you're suffering or the sins that you are being encumbered by, because he knows that he can bring healing to those situations. With Jesus, brokenness actually becomes a pathway to life if we'll embrace it. In fact, it's the starting point of the gospel as we're going to see. Now, furthermore, as Solomon keeps the end of life in view, uh, he wants us to live in reality. Look at verses 4 through 6 here. You know, really we have this epidemic of escapism in our culture. We all want to get out from underneath the things that are suffering and, and painful, and we run Uh, to medication, we want to intoxicate ourselves, we want to recreate, change jobs, marry somebody else, whatever we can do to make it better. But Solomon is going to show us that actually embracing that reality is the pathway to wisdom. Okay, look at verse 4. He says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is a vanity. You know, I love this verse. Whenever I hear radio DJs, this is the verse that comes in my mind. The crackling of a fire under pots, right? This, this laughter, this, this inane laughter that means nothing, that just hides everything in the world. And yet, Solomon is telling us the wise man is at the funeral 
feeling deeply the sorrows of life while the world parties it all away. (laughs) Similarly, the wise man, he says, faces his failures and inadequacies when called out rather than drowning them away. Because he knows if he will face them, he'll actually grow and can get better. The wise man talks about real things instead of laughing. And, and, I, and I think all of this, again, as we focus on the, as we face the real things of life with God, they're meant to teach us our need for God, right? And to point us in the right way that we need to go in the way we need to live. In fact, that's the goal of keeping death and suffering in view as a Christian, so that it would lead us into wise living. The important things get really clear in the midst of suffering and death. And many of you have experienced that. Then he tells us this. Look at verse 7. He's got a couple things. He'll Verse 7 through 9, as he's thinking about the end of life, he says, look, here's a few things I've learned in my short time under the sun that can derail you from being wise. First one is this, verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. He's saying, listen, you could be swayed from wise living by power and money. That these things quickly will take our our hearts away. They have a promise to them that you can live better with them. If you'll chase these things, life will get better. But he says that'll keep you away from wise living. Keep suffering and death before you. In fact, the stories in the news are all too regular of men and women, uh, you know, grand men and women of, of all stripes that have been done really great things and yet they get carried away because of money, right? We see it all, all the time. He's saying, watch out. But we want to be those that trust God to provide for our needs. Verse 8 says this, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. He's saying, look, As a wise person, don't get puffed up too quickly, right? The end of something is better than the beginning. We all know the promises when we start getting into something. Oh, yeah, we'll do that, and it's going to be great. But what really matters is where we get to, right? He's saying, be those that follow through. Look towards the outcome. Be patient to get to the outcome. Don't boast until it's done. (laughs) There's a joke in my house that I'm really good at completing 90% of home renovation projects, right? Get really excited, jump in there, get most of the work done, but it's always those finished details that drive me crazy. Solomon's saying, see it through to the end. The end is better than the beginning, right? Let's be Christians that follow through on things God has given us. Then he says this in verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry, anger lodges in the heart of fools. Now, if you know, the Bible has a lot to say on anger. Um, and here he's saying fools let anger just stew in their hearts. And we know that this has bad health consequences, spiritual consequences, breaks our relationships. And guess what? You look ridiculous when you're mad. It's <laughs> kind of what he's saying. In fact, we had this thing in our house. When our kids were throwing a fit, we started taping them with our phone. I don't know if this is a good idea, but we would tape them being ridiculous and then show it to them. And guess what? That would make them quite angry. (laughs) But we're trying to teach them your anger is not good. You look like a fool, right? 
James 4, 1 through 6 tells us when we get aggravated, it's because we can't get something that we want. That our heart has been set on something and somebody else or some situation is blocking what you want to get to and we get angry. Ask God and wait for Him is the answer that James tells us. I was talking to a friend here last Sunday and uh, we were talking about anger and how we have worked on this in our own life and, and God has sanctified us quite a bit and he said his dad always used to tell him, all right, Make sure the wise man shows up today and not the fool, right? We want to be the wise man that shows up to the situation and not the angry fool. And I think one of the best ways to keep ourselves from being angry is to constantly remind ourselves of what are we trying to accomplish? <laughs> keep the good end in view. In fact, studies say that when you, you feel that flash of anger, if you can ask your mind a question, it doesn't even matter what it is, any question that you actually can come down from being angry, just for a second. And one of the best questions to ask us is, what are we trying to do here? What, what are we working at here? What is the good end that I want? With our kids, remind yourself it's about godly discipleship. I want my kids to grow up and follow Jesus. With our spouse, we want the good of a loving relationship that can partner in the work of God that he has called us to. At work with teams, it's for us to work together for our mutual benefit at work, right? And for those that we are serving. And in our world, it's standing up against evil with truth and love. Work at the good ends. Commentator said this this week. He said, when angry, work for the good of others and not your own satisfaction. Right? We have to remind ourselves of this. James 1.19 and 20 says, look, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. You'll never make it better by being angry. In fact, you know, you can hijack the situation maybe for a moment and people will do what you want, but you're actually doing more damage than winning. So finally, where do you need to repent of your anger? Solomon says, this is not a wise way to live. I've learned in my days under the sun, this is not a wise way to live. Who do you need to apologize to today and make it right? This is the wise way to live as a believer in Jesus. And then Solomon, as he's considering the end of life, he teaches us this in verses 10 through 12. Look at this. He calls us to look towards the future. Okay? As we think about our end, he's also calling us to look towards the future. Verse 10, he says, Say not... Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life on him who has it. He's saying, look it, it doesn't do us well to dwell in the past, even if those were really, really good days. Right? It's, it's not even saying that the past wasn't better. It may have been. But the wise man looks at where he is now and where he's going and begins to order his life in that way. To begin looking that way with God. He also tells us that just like our savings and our investments of money can make life easier when trouble comes our way, that wisdom is just like that. And I would say he says it's even more valuable that wisdom actually helps you get through the hard times for the man 
who has it. And our world wants us to live in the things that have happened in the past, whether good or bad, the, the glory of the old days or the hurts that have made us who we are. And yet Solomon says that isn't wisdom. Don't live in the former glory and don't dwell on the past hurts. In fact, the promise of the gospel is that the things that have happened to us in the past can be redeemed, they can be put behind us, and we can walk forward into a glorious future that Jesus has for us. In fact, we're going to have graduation Sunday here in a couple weeks, but I used to write this verse in, in high schoolers' Bibles. We, I think we may have even read it last week. Philippians three twelve through 14. Paul says, thinking about the future, not that I've already obtained perfect salvation yet or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead and I press on towards the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Some of us have been living in the past. Some of us have been hurt in the past. Some of us, better days are in the past. But God says, don't look there. Look where I'm taking you. We're coming to the end of life and eternity. And if you're with me, it's going to be really, really good. So walk with me today. And let's do the things that are valuable along the pathway as we look towards this end. Now, as we consider the end of life, Solomon also gives us a good reminder, something to hang on to here in verses 13 and 14. He's going to really show us that really wise Christians surrender themselves to God. Okay, look at this. Pastor Kevin talked about God's sovereignty a few weeks ago, but here Solomon reminds us of it again. Verse 13, he says, look, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what has been crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He says, look, in, in the span of your short life, remember there's one who's sovereign, who's eternal, who's got it all in his hands, and you need to connect with him. God has made all things, all creation, us, all the good and bad things we experience. He's in control of it all. We can try to run and escape the things that come our way, and the Bible says that's foolish, or we can surrender our lives to the God who's in charge of it all. When we realize the short duration of our life, we begin to grasp our finite nature against God's infinite nature. We realize we could never understand everything that has happened before or will come after us. And where does this leave us? It leaves us that the wise response is to give our life to God, entrust it to Him. He's the only one that can carry us through everything now and into eternity. Trust Him. He created the world. He knows what happened before. He knows what's about to come, and He said, I'll be with you. Romans 10.8 talks about how to do this. It says, you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. <laughs> so stop your striving. Stop your manipulating. Stop your posturing. Just come and confess Jesus is Lord and begin to follow him. And here's the cool thing. Romans 8, 28 says, We know that for those who love God, 
all things will work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, Paul is reminding us, you don't got to worry about what happens because you got a good God that said, I'll be for you and this will be good for you as we walk through it. So if you've never given your life to Christ today, I'd say surrender to him. Give it to him. In light of the end that's coming, give him your life. Begin the most exciting life you've ever lived. Now, in comparison to the excesses of folly, this search for wisdom, of striving to be godly, Solomon's going to advocate for kind of a middle way to live. And this is really interesting. Okay, It's a gracious way to live, a balanced life before God. So let's look at these verses. We're going to talk about these for a few minutes. Uh, Verse 15 here. It says, look, in my vain life, I have seen everything. Okay, so Solomon's probably writing this near the end of his life. Here's what he says. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Yeah, that's backwards of what we think. Verse 16, listen to this one. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? He says this, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that would not hold your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Listen, this, this is a fascinating passage. Solomon's really giving us kind of the great errors, the, the poles that we naturally go towards in humanity that really have the same motive and the ultimate same end. That there are those who strive to prosper and advance themselves and find life through religion, and there are those that try to find life through taking it as they can, all the evil doing they can do. But both, I want you to see this, both are the same in the fact that they want to manipulate God and their world to their advantage. And Solomon says those will lead to death. Both religion and pursuing evil can be avenues for humans to try to get ahead and pursue death. Now look at verse 16 again. Again, fascinating verse. Do not be overly righteous or too wise. Don't destroy yourself, he says. The natural sinful religious bend of man that we try to find ways and rituals to make ourselves acceptable to God. We we are ascetic and deny ourselves of all sorts of things. We set up our own rules that we try to keep. We carry out certain ceremonies. We try to live in certain ways so that God will be happy with us. And we generally think if I do good, then I will get good. And the more good I do, the more good I'll get from God. If I do bad, I'll get bad from God. The more God dislikes me. But this is not the gospel. Okay? This is not the gospel. This is not how grace works. The gospel teaches us that I could never have done enough to please God. I could never keep enough rules, fast enough, give enough money, do enough special religious ceremonies or pray enough to make myself acceptable to God. And worse yet, there's nothing I could do that move could move God's hand. He's in control of it all and he does exactly what he wills. 
In fact, Jesus was more upset with the prideful religious leaders than he was the great sinners of the day. And yet we approach religion like this. We try to be perfect. We try to make God notice our good deeds, that he will bless us and find us. And yet we find ourselves completely miserable. (laughs) And worse than that, I think we even keep people from the gospel when we live this way. Just like we see with the Pharisees. In fact, this is what the world accuses us of as Christians, right? You're hypocritical. You have all these rules and you can't even keep them. And yet the gospel says that we could never do enough to feel close to God. We're going to come back to that in just one second. Also in 17, he says, look, on the flip side, don't be overly wicked. Right? And what we do in our wickedness is we try to strive and grab everything we can in the world and life, even through illegitimate means to make life really good. And it can seem like sometimes, as we heard in the Psalms, that the wicked are getting ahead. Right? We look around and the corruption runs rampant and it seems like they have really good lives. And the psalmist said this in Psalm 73, 12, and 17. It says, the wicked are always at ease. They increase their riches. And then verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. In other words, we, and we see this with movie stars and famous people all the time. right? They cast off God. They do whatever they can to get ahead, to make money. And then suddenly, they die of an overdose right, or whatever. And now they have died apart from God and will spend an eternity apart from God, and the life looks really fun until you discern their end, right? Christians keep the end in view. We get distracted with money and stuff and pleasures, but God says all that won't satisfy you. In fact, it only leads to destruction. So don't kill yourself with foolishness and wickedness. Steal away your life. But The gospel turns all this on its head. It says the wicked and the overly righteous get grace even though they don't deserve it. Neither one of these groups deserve anything from God. The gospel says it isn't about what they have or haven't done. It's about God's love and kindness towards us in the person of Christ that he decided to show us from eternity past. It has nothing to do with us. Gospel is that we received God's kindness when in no way did we deserve it. God's unmerited favor towards us. This is God's grace. Romans 5.8 says it this way. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No reason for God to, to, to do anything for you, but he loved you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. While we were playing in the gutter or striving to be perfect on on whatever ways we'd found, Christ died for us. (laughs) The gospel is that while we were stuck in our sin, Christ died for us because he loved us. And there is nothing you could have done to gain it. And once you get it, there's nothing you can do to lose it. His offer to you is to just come, just come. Are you religious or wicked? Be forgiven, accepted by Jesus. 
Give your life to Jesus. And Solomon kind of points to this answer here. Look, he says in verse 18, the man who fears God will come out of both of these things. In other words, there's a balanced way to live in the gospel, grasping the reality of our human sinful nature and the reality of the grace offered in Jesus Christ. Straying from trying to make ourselves acceptable to God, living in God's grace, and also straying from the things that we know are evil. In fact, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wise Christian acknowledges both his sin nature and lives daily in the grace of God that says you are sinless. <laughs> this is where we live. This is the entire Christian life. Be real of our sin, but be real with the grace of God. Okay. Famous Christian pastor Tim Keller, as you, many of you may have heard, died this week. But he was really good at, at living in this space, living in the balanced life of the gospel. And this is what he said about this. He said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is where we got to live. Both in, in the sin of our sin nature, we have to acknowledge that, that we are sinners, we need a God to save us. And yet this God, unprompted in His love, came and saved us. And this is what we revel in week by week. And so we have to learn to live daily in the grace of God. Stop running, stop striving, and have peace and be settled in what God has done for you. Now here in the last eight verses of Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon's going to show us that, listen, you know, all of humanity has this sin problem. And basically wise Christians will confess this sin problem as we've been saying. Look at verse 20. Solomon points to our sin problem. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then he gives us a great example. Verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say about you, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Basically he's saying, whatever sin you see going on in the world, you know you've done the same thing. So just acknowledge it, right? We're sinners. We need to take this to heart. We often think that people are innately good, and if we can just call out the good in them, they'll do good. And yet, situations like that where our coworkers are talking about us, we know them and even in our own hearts, we are not innately good. We are sinful. And the Bible witnesses to the fact of our sin nature. Romans 3, 9 through 12, Paul says this, all are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this is the starting point of the gospel. That then goes and says, Jesus died for you in that situation. You weren't good, but God was good. And God loved you, and he's come to make a way so that you can be saved and made perfectly righteous before him. 1 John 1, uh, 6 and 8 and 9 also gives us a picture of what it looks like to live a balanced gospel life. It says this, If we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, so we're working at... We are sinners, and yet we stray from sin. 
If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the hope of the gospel. Now, finally, Solomon is going to tell us a few things here in Ecclesiastes, last couple of verses. You know, he says, I haven't learned much, but here's a few things I have learned under the sun. Look at verse 23. He says, all this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it's far from me. That which has been is far off and deep and very deep. Who can find it out? Again, he knows he's realizing his finite nature as a man. God knows way more than me. I'll never know it all. I'll never be as wise as God. And because of my sinful nature, it's even harder to get at wisdom. And yet, the Bible tells us that God has revealed all wisdom in the person of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.24 calls Christ the power and the wisdom of God. Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You want to know true wisdom? You want to know how to live? The Bible says look to Jesus. He is absolute truth that will guide you into wise living and salvation with God. Now, here's what, and Banji, come on up. Here's some of the things that Solomon says he learned. Look at verse 25. It says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness of madness. Remember, that was his original project. If you remember back to the beginning of Ecclesiastes, he wanted to find what was truly meaningful. And then he says this. This is funny. And I found something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Remember, this is coming from a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? He said, if I've learned anything, there's some ungodly women out there that you ought to stay away from. Guys, again, a warning to us to stay away from the millions of women online that will turn our hearts away from our wife and from God. He says, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another in the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found it. One man among a thousand I found, but a, but a woman among all these I haven't found. He's saying, in my experience, I've found a few guys that I thought maybe they were wise, but really there's been no one. And see, this alone I found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. What Solomon is telling us here is that my project to find wisdom has failed. I am just like every other man since the fall in the garden that has run far from God to find pleasure and try to find the meaning in life, and yet it has only left me with nothing. In fact, only true wisdom can be found in a life lived with God. We're going to sing a song here of response. It's called, Come to the Altar. And really the question for you is, are you going to live your life on your own apart from God? Are you going to surrender to Him? He says, this is the wise way to live. As we look down the road at the suffering and the death to come, it will come. We need eternity to follow. Wisdom says, let's follow Jesus. He's got a better way to live. 
And maybe you've been striving to find God through doing lots of religious things and trying to make Him happy, and you're miserable. God says, I died for you when you were yet a sinner. This is my grace towards you. Come and rest in my grace. I love you. You are forgiven. Or maybe you've been in the gutter doing sins that we know God does not want, right? Would you come and confess those to Him this morning? Respond to Him so that you can experience His grace. He loves you. He died for you. You are clean before Him, as First John said, when we confess our sins to Him. The wise way to live is to surrender to Jesus. And so let's do that this morning as we respond to Him in song.